Now, who is God to you? What is God to you? Is God an all-knowing and terrible judge who keeps record of your sins, one who is merely biding his time before he brings on the hammer? Who is God to you? What is God to you? Is he an exacting master that you can never please, that you can never satisfy, who looks down upon you with disapproval? That's who God would be if we did not have Jesus. And that is who God is to us when we have a law-based relationship with God. But Jesus has abolished the law. Jesus has given us grace, and that grace means that we know our God as our loving Father. Who is God to you? What is He to you? He is your loving Father. So first of all, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus worked peace. Jesus worked peace. Now, we read in verse 11, we looked at it last week, but look at verse 11 one more time. Uh, Paul says, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. So in verses 11 and 12, Paul told us the reality that was at one time true. The reality uh, before, before the Gentiles, before the Ephesians came to place their faith in Jesus Christ was that they were alienated from God. They were alienated from God because of their sin, and they were alienated from the Jews because of the hardened hearts of the Jewish people. But starting with verse 13, Paul tells us that there is now a new reality. So verse 13 is a contrast to verse 11. At one time, you were alienated. But verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now what Paul means by you who are far off We read that in verse 12, don't we? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Uh, In fact, the language of being near and far from God, they come straight out of the Old Testament. Um, In the Old Testament, being near to God or the nearness of God was the blessing and the privilege of being in covenant relationship with God. So Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4 told Israel, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? 
You see, Moses was reminding the people of Israel, remember the great privileges and the blessings of being in covenant relationship with your God. He is near you. And at the same time, the Old Testament looked forward to the far-off Gentiles who were not in the covenant relationship with God, who were strangers to the promises of God. But the Old Testament looked forward to the far-off Gentiles being brought near by the Messiah. So, for example, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1, it's one of the servant, suffering servant passages. There we read, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. And that passage goes on to, to proclaim the promise of redemption for all nations. So what Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers is this. Once, at one time, without Christ, you are far from God. You are outside of God's covenant community. You were not a people who had hope. But Jesus' sacrificial death, His blood that he shed has changed your relationship with God so that you are no longer Gentile sinners outside of covenant with God, but you have been brought near. You are no longer alienated, but you are reconciled. You are no longer strangers to God, but you are children. And that is what Paul is saying. And seeing this and recognizing this, we realize that there are two inseparable dimensions to Jesus' peacemaking work. Jesus' peacemaking work has two facets, inseparable. When, because of Jesus, sinners have peace with God, then by that same Jesus, the redeemed believers have peace with fellow believers. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. You see, Paul is continuing to reflect upon the Jewish-Gentile relationship. And this was a difficult hurdle for the Jewish people to overcome. You see, for the first century Jewish people, there was no greater heresy than to say and to believe that the Gentiles have equal standing before God as the Jewish people. You know, think about something that is so ingrained in your heart and to have the world turned upside down. And I think we need to see the reaction of the Jewish people with certain sympathy in our hearts. It's hard to have your world turned upside down. And so there were a constant strife, a friction, difficulties between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. But if you are by Jesus reconciled to God, and if you are by Jesus in peace with God, then by the same Jesus and by the same gospel, you are reconciled to other believers and you have peace with other believers. In this specific case, the Gentile believers are reconciled to the Jewish believers and the Jewish believers have peace with the Gentile believers because there are no two separate peoples of God. 
There are no Jewish people of God. There are no, there are no Gentile people of God that relate to God in their own distinct way and in isolation from one another. Jesus has one bride. Jesus has one church. Jesus has one body. That is why Paul says that Jesus might create in himself one new man. Now at this time, I think we can take a moment and think about what this means. It means this. Any attempt to segregate, segregate believers by race, by class, by status, by ethnicity, by profession, any attempt to segregate believers is an attack against the gospel. And we need to see that clearly. Any attempt, any favoritism, any separation of believers on worldly terms by the standard that the world values is a direct attack against the gospel, and it is a betrayal of the gospel. So you remember, don't you, in the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, we read there, Paul was so deeply grieved when Peter the apostle, when Peter feared the critical eyes of the Judaizers, and he separated himself from the Gentile believers. And you saw how deeply grieved Paul was and how deeply angry he was. Why? Because Paul knew that erecting once again the wall that Jesus tore down was a betrayal of the gospel. Now, many of us have lived through uh, the slogan that theology divides, but love unites. And indeed, in the last century, the 20th century, often the battle cry that we heard was that unity is the most important thing. And for the sake of unity, so many people were willing to compromise the truth. They say unity is all that matters. Paul would never agree with that. Paul would never purchase shallow unity at the expense of the gospel. And the unity that you can buy by compromising the truth is not true unity. It's a unity built upon lie. It's a thin, shallow, flimsy unity. But that said, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it creates and demands unity, not in spite of the gospel, but built upon the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul means here when he says that Jesus worked peace, that because of his death and resurrection, that we sinners, we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. Secondly, Paul tells us that Jesus killed hostility. Jesus killed hostility. Uh, the relationship between God's law 
and the gospel often inspires a very heated and intense discussion. Um, and it can't be helped uh, because both law and the gospel are so important. And in addition to that, the Bible uses the word law in a in few different senses. And so if we are trying to understand scripture carefully, we can't avoid deep, intense discussions about the relationship between the law and the gospel. Sometimes uh, it requires us to think very carefully in ways that surprise us. And actually, that's exactly what is happening here because the law-gospel dynamic that Paul uh, is teaching us, how the law relates to the gospel and how the gospel relates to the law, what Paul says here, it, it appears quite difficult at first glance. So look at verse 14 and 15. Paul says, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So Paul says that Jesus abolished the law, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And yet that's not the only thing that the New Testament has to say about the law, is it? Because... Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. <laughs> and then he goes on to say in Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see how complex the issue can get? How can Jesus both uphold the law and how can Jesus also abolish the law? Well, let me put it this way to you. Um, it is not a contradiction. In Matthew chapter 5 and in passages like that, Jesus is referring to the moral law against the Pharisees' selective obedience and their claims of righteousness. Now, what's moral law? Moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. This is the instruction commandment from the Lord that is always true, always binding, always authoritative, in the lives of his creation and his creatures. You see, the moral law, for example, you shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment. That commandment is true, not just during the time of Moses. That commandment was true before Moses, and it is true today. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That commandment was still true before Moses, and after Moses, and so on and so forth. So moral law is God's abiding instruction for all ages, for all times, in all places. And when Jesus is upholding the law, he is teaching and he is putting the, can I put it this way? He is putting the Pharisees 
in their place because they, they had such a selective way of obeying God and they were boasting that they were righteous before God. And so Jesus was rebuking their negligence, their, uh, their disobedience, their hardened heart by saying not even the smallest part of the law can pass away. But in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is thinking of the wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, that law that stood as the wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentiles. And so look back to verse 11. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul is talking about that kind of law. Circumcision is a prominent part of the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law are the commands and instructions about ritual purity and holiness, laws regarding worship and the practices of the temple. And because circumcision is such a prominent part of the ceremonial law, Circumcision represents the whole system of the ceremonial law. And you see the Jewish people, they lived and died by the ceremonial law. And that is why they felt only contempt for the Gentiles who, if I were to put the Gentiles' faith in somewhat modern expression, that the Gentiles were the people who came to God saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And the Jewish people had nothing but contempt for these people who dare approach God without any of the ceremonial purity, without any of the ceremonial obedience, but simply by the cross. Nonsense, the Jewish people Said. You see, so the wall of separation, the wall of hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews, they're not the moral law. Moral law is what separates the sinners from God. The ceremonial law is what separated the Jewish people from the Gentiles. But the, Jew, uh, but the Gentile believers, they could approach God, and they must approach God saying, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, because Jesus abolished the ceremonial law. Now, ceremonial law, the instructions and the ordinances about temple worship, sacrifices, ritual cleansing, circumcision, ceremonial law were given to Israel by God. And because they came from God, it was not possible for anyone to disobey the ceremonial law and expect God to accept them. The ceremonial law were from the Lord. And so as long as this ceremonial law were in effect, you had no other way of approaching God than through obedience to the ceremonial law. But the ceremonial law was like a map. When do you need a map? You need a map while you are traveling. 
but you don't need a map after you have reached your destination. And the holiness that the ceremonial laws demanded were actually not contained in the law, but they were pointing to Jesus. The necessity of cleansing symbolized in circumcision was not contained, that the reality of cleansing was not contained in circumcision in itself. It was pointing to Jesus. The promise of sin atonement portrayed in the sacrifices, it was not the death of bulls and goats that brought them grace, but they were pointing to Jesus. You see, these blessings, these promises contained in the ceremonial law, they were pointing to Jesus like a map. And so once Jesus died on the cross, then the ceremonial laws are fulfilled and they are abolished because we have reached our destination. We no longer need a map. And that is why Paul says in verse 16, Jesus reconciles both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. Jesus killed hostility. Jesus abolished the ceremonial law. Um, And for that reason, um, there is no going back for Christians to animal sacrifices. There is no going back for Christians to require people to circumcise their babies. There is no going back for Christians to meeting God once again in the temple in Jerusalem. The ceremonial laws are fulfilled and abolished. Thirdly and lastly, Jesus preached peace. Jesus preached peace. So verse 17, Paul says this, And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. You know, that's a fascinating thing because how does Paul say that Jesus came and preached peace to you when in fact Jesus never visited Ephesus? You realize that, right? Jesus never stepped a foot outside of Palestine. So how is Paul able to say to the Ephesian believers, Jesus came and preached peace to you? And you see, what Paul means is that Jesus came to Ephesus. Jesus came to the Ephesians in the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed faithfully, truly, then it is Jesus himself who pleads with sinners to believe. And when the gospel is proclaimed truthfully and faithfully, it is Jesus himself who comes to his people to comfort his flock, to rest. And that is why there is both wonder and dread to gospel ministry. The wonder is this. As flawed and as weak and as insufficient the preacher may be, 
when the preaching is true and faithful to scriptures, Jesus is speaking through him. You are not hearing a mere man. You are hearing Jesus. That's the wonder, but it's also a dread, isn't it? <laughs> How dare a preacher stand before anyone and says, does, says the Lord, if he doesn't, in fact, say it. You know, it is an awful thing for a preacher to stand before anyone and this, this is what the word of the Lord says, knowing that he is speaking as a mouthpiece of the Lord. And God forbid if he stands before anyone and says things that are untrue and unfaithful to scriptures and his teachings. And I think that's why most preachers have a, a experience both joy and dread at preaching. The wonder of the gospel and the fear of the Lord. Um, but for you, this is important to recognize. You know me. You know my weaknesses. You know my many failings. And yet it is incumbent upon you to recognize that if I am being faithful to scriptures, you're not hearing me. You're hearing the Lord Jesus. Do you see that? Do you get that? And if you allow me a little tangent for a little while, um, this is where we need to recognize that a preacher's job is not to dissect movies. His job is not to talk about politics, economics. And the preacher's main identity is not and should not be a cultural warrior. Now, there are times when Scripture demands the preachers to talk about certain things, but the problem is that I see too many preachers who see their main identity and main calling as cultural critics. And their, their teaching and their ministry is so shaped by what the world is talking about that week that day and in 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 their attempt to be relevant by talking about the same things that the world is talking about they become irrelevant to their calling and to the purpose which jesus calls them you see the preacher's job is not to be a culture warrior it's not to say give you those one-line zingers that put your political economic enemies in their place and that is why even if what they say is mostly true about those things, when a ministry is defined by those things, they could be right about most, if not all, of the things that they say and yet still be wrong about everything. The preacher's job is to urge sinners to be reconciled to God and to comfort the reconciled saints to know the peace of Jesus Christ. And this is the message of peace. Look at verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit 
to the Father. Now, Lord willing, uh, before our Ephesians series ends, I hope to do something of a summary sermons about these various topics that we see throughout Ephesians. For example, Trinity. It was in the very beginning of Ephesus, and it pops up all over the place. And I think it might be worthwhile for us to maybe do a sermon on what the Ephesians says to us, teaches us about the Trinity of God's nature. But for now, simply note this, that Jesus, the Son of God, gives us the spirit of adoption by whom we know our Creator as our Father. That's what Paul is saying. So we began this morning with me asking you, who is God to you? Is he that all-knowing and terrible judge? Who is God to you? Is he that disappointed master? God would be all of these things except for Jesus' death and resurrection. It is in his death and resurrection that our Creator, the Holy Lord, has become our Father. And this peace, this peace is only in Jesus. So loved ones, let me urge you, are you right with Jesus? Be right with Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe that what he has done on the cross and in the resurrection, they are for you. And if you are in Jesus, you have peace with God. And if you have peace with God, be comforted. He is your father. And he is a good father. He is deeply pleased with you. He does not begrudge your struggles. Rather, his heart, his heart wells up with compassion when he sees your weakness. That's how Father loves his children. Are you struggling? Are you weak? Are you weary? Are you troubled? Know this, that God is your Father, and He loves you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have this unshakable, immovable assurance that you love us, that you are pleased with us, and that your heart is filled with compassion and tenderness for us. And so I pray that your grace and your comfort would be as the healing balm for the hurting hearts of your people, that in their sorrows, in their weakness, in their shame, in their doubt, and in their fear, they would know your tenderness and your grace. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.